I think theology's for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? Friends, welcome to Theology Unplugged. This is the weekly broadcast to bring you theology uh, into your living room, into your headset, into your iTunes, into your Android, into your what other devices do we have to format this thing for nowadays? Oh man, you just dream it up and we're there. It's nonstop the things that you have to come up with, Tim, to be able to format these things into. That's right. I have to format them into apps too, right? Yeah, I have the unfortunate uh, role of having to own every device you can think of (laughs) (laughs) so that I can test things on it. But it's purely ministry, you know, it's all about the ministry. It's not that much fun owning all that stuff, though. It's just confusing. It's confusing, but you know what's interesting is you get to see the improvement of certain devices. Yeah. For instance, folks... If you are in the market for a tablet computer and you do not want to spend the money for an iPad, I heavily recommend to you the newest gadget in my arsenal of trying to get our apps on uh, on Android uh, tablet platform, and that is the Google Nexus 7. It's pretty darn cool. Really? Yeah. You can tell. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not all about trashing uh, the, the Kindle Fire, but there is a marked improvement between the Kindle Fire and the Google Nexus 7. But you don't have the newest Kindle Fire. I don't. No, that's correct. But at the same time, I would still say if you're in that uh, market, go for the Nexus 7. All right. I feel like a complete Luddite. I have no idea what you guys are talking (laughs) about. That's okay. You you have an iPhone, though, don't you? I do. Yeah. And you text and things like that, right? That's it. All I hear and I text. You know how I can tell Sam has an iPhone? Is because whenever I text him, I can see that it shows he's texting back. That he's writing? Yeah, so I figure that's only an iPhone thing, right? Yeah. Between iPhones? I didn't know you could do that. What's funny, though, is when you see someone writing, and then they stop, and then you see him writing again, Uh and then they stop, Uh and you're like, what's going on? There's like this inner (laughs) turmoil happening on the other end. Yeah, yeah, especially in... uh, theology conversations, you know, because I, <laughs> I was whipping up on Sam and he'd start to write back and then then he, he would change his mind, then write back again and change his mind and on and on we went. I had to repent all along the way. <laughs> <laughs> good stuff, good stuff. All right, and guys. You're, are, is there any update on the book, uh, the charismatic book, real quick, if our listeners are curious? No, I don't think so. I mean, Sam has been talking about it a little bit here and there, but it's a, it's a little while off. It is. Yeah, we're we're still trying to figure out how to do that because my book on uh, spiritual gifts is being relaunched in the spring yeah. with about twenty five percent expanded materials by Regal. By Regal. Hey uh-huh. Sam, so this is just all. This broadcast is about me, really. Okay. Uh, I submitted my first book proposal ever this week to Zondervan mm-hmm. about theologians. So you know, if you know anybody. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm looking. I'm looking under the table, and I don't see. I don't see any cash coming my way. What, all what? right. All oh, right. There's nothing under yeah. there. I, I pay in Luther lattes. Okay. <laughs> all right, guys. Well, we're going to be talking today, starting a new series uh, called uh, uh, Roman Catholicism. An introduction right. to Roman Catholicism. It's not an invitation to Roman Catholicism. I don't think. Like our invitation to. Um, uh, Calvinism was yeah. each one of us are Calvinists but this can be a little bit different because whenever we talked about the Calvinism series all of us were Calvinists talking about Calvinism and this time none of us are Roman Catholics and we're going to be talking about Roman Catholicism 
Okay. So what makes us qualified to talk about this subject? Why, why bring this up? Um, Sam? Well, I think, first of all, because we are all uh, in love with church history. Uh, all three of us are passionate about it. And uh, we are also very much uh, proponents of the Protestant Reformation and the principles that were articulated there. And so we have, by necessity, been compelled to uh, come to some understanding of what Roman Catholicism is. And then I think thirdly is because it is such a a volatile issue in our present day. It is a controversial one. It's divisive. And uh, we are constantly encountering people, at least I do, who are either coming out of Roman Catholicism or they're going into it. Mm-hmm. And so these are issues of eternal life and death in many respects, and uh, I think we need to be familiar with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think any Christian, after a little while, I mean, you're going to, in some parts of the country, you're going to bump it. If you aren't Roman Catholic, you're going to bump into Roman Catholics quite a bit, like where I'm from, up uh, in the north more. Uh, there are many more, I think, Roman Catholic churches uh, in the area, at least where I grew up, compared to here in Oklahoma. Uh, but at the same time, I think, like what you said, Sam, with, with church history and stuff like that, I mean, it just... It doesn't get too long in your Christian walk that you're going to have to really start considering how does Roman Catholicism differ from what I believe, or if you are a Roman Catholic, how, how, how is, are some of these things different than uh, Protestants? Now, an interesting thing in theology and whenever you're talking about uh, different issues that you bring up, because Sam, Tim, you and I teach in theology um, uh, a, a lot, we have to represent positions that are not held to by us. I mean... Obviously, we're not just going around teaching about everything just we believe, but we want to help people have a broader understanding and work through uh, whatever it is that they may be going through theologically with other issues that we may not agree with. And I think that at some point, you have to, as a teacher, come to the conclusion that you can speak about something accurately and with, um, with a great degree of information uh, even if you're not an adherent of whatever position it is that you're representing, otherwise we're kind of left with a very limited arsenal and um, effectiveness in our teaching of theology, I think. Yeah, I think so too. I, I mean, I think that that's true with Buddhism or or anything really. I'm not not comparing the two to each other, but uh, in a certain way though is that you want to be aware of uh, for lack of a better term, the alternatives, <laughs> or you know, you need to be aware of people who who have a view of God uh, that is different or similar to you, and and just being aware of those things because if not, you're you're speaking from positions of ignorance instead of from pos- positions of being informed. Well, and you you ask the question sometimes, like if we had a special guest in here, maybe and we said we got a real live Roman Catholic this time, so now it's really authoritative. I think whenever you talk about it in that way, what you're talking about it is in the sense of this person has experienced the uh, church of Rome in a different way than you and I have because none of us have ever been Roman Catholic and been, been a part of the experiential and an emotional type of uh, situation that you're always involved in as one, right? Yeah, but yeah, from a, I think from so. a factual standpoint, I think that you, are, the three of us, can can talk about this. But I also think, to some degree, from an experiential standpoint, in this way, because there's going to be elements as we go through this series, and it's probably going to be a 15 week series, that we are um, showing how we understand and empathize, and even cross over in some areas with certain elements of the Roman Catholic Church, such as uh, their desire to experience unity. 
You know, you and I can't stand on the outside and say, well, we can talk about that in a factual way, but we don't experience it in any way and we don't care for it in any way. Uh, the desire to experience Christ in some type of tangible way like they may within the Eucharist. Um, it's not as if we don't understand and empathize with that. And so I guess one of the things that I'm trying to do with our audience and with us right here is legitimize us three non-Roman Catholics talking about the subject of Roman Catholicism and saying you need to listen to this. Mm-hmm. Now, Sam, you've been a professor of uh, where you had taught a class on Roman Catholicism. Yes, at Wheaton College. Yeah. And so you, you've dealt with this uh, quite a bit as a, as a teacher and teaching this stuff is is uh, certainly going to be something different in the university setting. So that is a uh, part of your exposure to it, correct? Yeah. I mean, I've got, um, I've known quite a few individuals, some of whom were close friends who are now Roman Catholics. And so, you know, you, you, when you, there's somebody that's close to you that has um, either converted to Catholicism or maybe been raised in it their whole life. Um, it, you take on a, a special interest in it because you care about them. You care about whether they're being, um, taught the truth are they being misled and and what ultimately is at stake Mm -hmm. good stuff in 2004 i went through experience in my life a time period of my life where i was preparing actually for the theology program we have a large section in the theology program that deals with roman catholicism and so for about a year and a half in my life that that is basically the only place that i was Whenever I was deep in the study of theology, I was around Roman Catholics. I was talking to Roman Catholics, reading Roman Catholics. I was trying to figure out the best of Roman Catholicism. And at some points, I did have a very deep, strong, I, I don't know if I would say a conviction that I was about to convert or anything like that, but it was this deep sense that I'm that there, there's something here I'm missing. And I became very, very uncomfortable with my own standing in my own Protestant circles as I would lay my head down at night and pray. And I prayed many times. I remember saying, Lord, this is really confusing me now because there are certain things here that that incline me in this direction. And I feel like I'm being pulled in this direction. I'm very emotional about it. It's not in the same type of emotion like I get when we went through our charismatic series that I wanted to be Roman Catholic. I didn't want to be Roman Catholic ever. But at the same time, I felt an inclination towards that. And sometimes I tell people, I looked at, the, I, I went up to that front door of the Roman Catholic Church and they opened it and they said, come on in. And, and I, I stood there and, you know, hesitated for a little bit before I turned around and left. But all of us have been in it to some degree. Yeah, and my background is, is kind of the opposite. So your, your exposure to it was at a theological level. My exposure to it was that uh, I was born into a Roman Catholic family, and my, my grandmother uh, goes to, up until recently, would even go to Mass every single day. Um, and, uh, and then my, um, I have a relative who is a nun as well, and I remember even visiting her uh, at the the place where she was, and even having dinner with all the nuns, and and uh, and just having. Uh, I, I even remember the meal that we had when we were together. And so for me, though, I wasn't. It was at a time in my life when I wasn't really thinking theologically. It was more just very just experiencing. You know, I remember experiencing the the nuns that were playing guitars uh, in my Sunday school class as we sang songs and stuff. And so just kind of the feeling of being a part of the Roman Catholic Church, and and that was probably up until I was about ten years. Old. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the the word Catholic, Sam. That's something, somebody's listening to this for the first time, listening to Theology and Blood for the first time, they hear the word Catholic, something comes to mind. Generally speaking, talk about that word. Well, its most basic meaning is universal. Uh, it has a, a view toward being all-encompassing. Um, so it's the Catholic Church is their way of referring to what they believe to be uh, the totality of the true body of Christ um, throughout the world. In fact, some um, within Roman Catholicism uh, would prefer to drop the adjective Roman mm-hmm. and just leave it as Catholicism. And I think pretty much in today's world, even Protestants would acknowledge that if you simply said Catholic, you know immediately um, what what they mean. However, um, there is, like, is it the Apostles' Creed or Nicene Creed, where it says, I believe in the one holy Catholic Church. I believe it's the uh, Apostles. Yeah, and Protestants affirm that. Mm-hmm. oftentimes every Sunday. Uh, but we're not referring to the church in Vatican City, uh, in Italy. Uh, we're, not, we're not, by that affirmation, giving allegiance to the Bishop of Rome, whom we call the Pope. Uh, we're simply affirming that we believe that there is a universal body of Christ that, it, in, that encompasses all genuine born-again believers. Yeah. What would be the opposite of that if we were to say, um, in the early church, let's go back before it had the connotations that it has today. And when we say it, we think of Roman Catholic. But before that, before the Protestant Reformation, before all the stuff, whenever people in the early church would hear the word Catholic, what were they responding to? What's the opposite of something being Catholic? Why is the church Catholic? Well, I mean, this is just shooting from the hip. I, I would think that it would be in, in response against, so it would basically be the, the early ecumenical councils uh, like uh, Nicaea, uh, Chalcedon, or Chalcedon. I think like that. those, people are basically saying we believe in the Trinity, we believe in, in uh, Jesus being fully God, fully man. And so I'd say it would be against like Gnosticism. So, so different flavors of Christianity that sprung up early on uh, that the church collectively said, uh, no, we do not believe the Bible teaches these things. So I think to say, are you part of the Catholic Church, uh, that the apostles, so I think what it means is that we are following in what the apostles uh, were taught to them by Jesus and then now teach to us and uh, accordance to the word as well. And those early creeds um, uh, were designed by those who led them and who formulated the confessional statements to speak for the whole church. They were not uh, restricted to one geographical area or to one um, movement within the broader church, but they were designed to be, as you just said, the word ecumenical uh, as referring to what Christians everywhere throughout the earth believe. Well, because at that time they weren't thinking of themselves in these like nationalistic terms right. or like, you know, okay, I'm a, we're a part of the church in Oklahoma. You know, they were thinking of themselves as we're a part of the church and wherever Christians are gathering in predominantly the Roman world, uh, that, that is the church, you know, that is the, the, the Catholic church. And unfortunately, sometimes within Protestant circles, I think that we have lost the flavor, the feeling, or the the aura, or the just the good theology of being Catholic, mm-hmm. uh, of being part of something bigger than what we are. Yeah. Um, not only do we sometimes as Protestants uh, reject and repudiate the term, but we repudiate the concept in our very practice because we may break up not only into denominational entities, but sometimes we just become uh, organizational or um, uh, silos of uh, a building that uh, this church meets. And no, we're not Catholic because 
we don't, you know, partake in the broader community of the body of Christ. It's just us. Yeah. So where do we begin? I mean, should we, maybe we should ask the question, where did Roman Catholicism begin? How did it emerge? Uh, where did it come from? Uh, would that be a good place for us to start? Well, sure. Um, I, I think uh, the history of it's definitely going to be something, but I do want to talk about two other things. Okay. Uh, the term Protestant and the term Eastern Orthodox, okay. which is go across the spe- spectrum with those. Okay. Well, Eastern the Eastern Orthodox Church... Um, as Christianity emerged in the first 1,000 years of its history, it was geographically and politically and culturally divided to some extent. And among the five, what they called the five patriarchal cities that were the most prominent, what were they? Alexandria, Antioch, Jerusalem, Constantinople, and Rome. Constantinople and Rome emerged as the most influential. And again, it was largely... It wasn't just religious, it was political, it was military, it was cultural, it was economic. And um, it, it eventually there were, there were certain issues, and we won't go into that now because that's a whole, maybe we could do a series on Eastern Orthodoxy, but yeah. there were certain issues, both theological, ecclesiological, uh, cultural in nature, linguistic, had to do with the language and how they expressed themselves, that eventually led to a split or division uh, between East and West, and uh, it kind of culminated in 1054 A.D., so a little, a little more than a 1,000 years after Jesus walked the earth. Um, and the, the two uh, groups have never been reconciled, although attempts have been made to do so. And their main division, although theologically they're very, very close, uh, their main division is over the primacy of the Bishop of Rome. The Roman Catholic Church says, that the Bishop of Rome, standing in apostolic succession from Peter to the present day, has unique authority over all Christians universally. And the Eastern Orthodox Church says, no, he has authority, but over his own area of influence in the church at Rome, but he does not have any unique authority over us or over other Christians elsewhere in the earth. So there was the initial division between East and West. And then Of course, the Protestant uh, division came in the wake of the so-called Protestant Reformation. We don't need to go into detail about that. There is an interesting history, by the way, behind the word Protestant that most Protestants themselves don't know about. Uh, Very briefly, there was um, a convocation. They call them diets. It had nothing to do with losing weight, by the way. Uh, It was called the Diet of Spire that occurred in 1526. And at this gathering, it was decided that the uh, religion of a particular province or state would be determined by the religion of the prince who governed it. And so if you lived in a, in a province uh, in Germany, let's say, where a Roman Catholic prince or governor ruled, then he could require Catholicism as the state religion, vice versa in case with Protestantism. And then in um, uh, 1529, at the second Diet of Spire, Roman Catholics asserted their authority and revoked 1526. They said, no, it's not up to the prince to to determine what religion will be in a particular area. Uh, Everybody will be Roman Catholic. And those who were following Luther and Zwingli and uh, at that point rose up and said, no, we protest. And what they were protesting initially wasn't uh, Roman Catholic theology or uh, anything having to do with Mary or purgatory, they were protesting the fact that the 
conclusions of the first Diet of Spire had just been overturned. And so this protestation that they wrote uh, is how the name came to be stuck to them. We today, of course, use it in a different sense. We think of it primarily in terms of protesting what we consider to be the corruption of the gospel that had entered into late medieval Catholicism, the, the idea that the, the simplicity and the purity of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone had largely been undermined, and these men, led by Luther and others, rose up in protest. Now, they did, mm-hmm. but that isn't initially how the word was used. But eventually, it came to be associated in the minds of most people. What a funny that. term to be associated with, too. I mean, it's uh, yeah. to be called Protestants or Protestants, uh, protesters, which... Uh, it's, it's a funny word. I think an unfortunate word. You know, I always tell people I would have much rather retain, rather retain the word Catholic or even Orthodox. Well, I like yeah. to, let's be advocates instead of protesters. Yeah. We advocate the genuine biblical yeah. gospel, but nobody's going to say, are you Roman Catholic or an advocate? Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's an interesting story about the Diet of Spire, though. Yeah. So for you theological uh, geeks, that's a good uh, fodder for dinner conversation. So well, okay, so we, we've got three major traditions that are out there within Protestantism. Normally, outside of these three major traditions, we will we, we talk about those in terms of uh, uh, of being maybe a cult or, or something that's outside of the broader Catholic Church or the broader Universal Church. Um, and we'll talk about maybe what the meaning of a cult is or something. So, so what, what you're saying there basically is that pretty much any Christian can trace their lineage back to being either Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, or Protestant. I suppose, I mean, we're going to have to make some of these arguments and have to make the argument, I guess, in history, what it means to be Catholic, what it means to be uh, uh, a Christian, what is the Orthodox understanding of such. But I think then the natural thing to ask is is something that, uh, Sam, you, you talked about a while back, um, about all the things that unite us between these three, mm-hmm. because there's we're going to talk spend a lot of time on divisions, right? Yeah. Yeah. We do need to acknowledge our common ground. That's very important, because a lot of people don't realize it. Yeah. I think a lot of Protestants would be shocked to realize how Orthodox both Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox are in their, in their views. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's name some things. All right. right. They they all hold to a red carpet. Is that right? <laughs> Let's start with the Trinity. Yeah, the Trinity, I think, is, I mean, that's yeah. where you got to start yeah. anyway. This is the very nature of, obviously, monotheistic, one God who exists eternally in three co-equal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, now, it, now, it is interesting, by the way, and we'll get back to this, that there's one little element within Trinitarianism that was a major factor in the split between Rome and Constantinople. And that is that uh, in uh, Roman Catholicism, at one of the um, uh, councils, uh, there was slipped in to the creed that Jesus, or that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son. And the Eastern Orthodox said, "Ho, oh, wait a minute! What right do you have to tamper with an Orthodox ecumenical creed? You didn't consult us. We don't even believe that's true." That was a major reason for the split. But we won't get into that now. The term though is filioque. 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 Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, Council of Toledo, 586. Yeah, yeah. Does the, does the Spirit proceed? We're talking about inter-Trinitarian relations. We know that the, the, the Spirit proceeds from the Father, but does the Spirit proceed, as you said, Tim, filioque, and from the Son? 
Um, doctrine of the Trinity. They agree um, on that. We're all sinners. Everybody agrees that we're sinners. Right. We're going to differ as far as what does it mean that we're all sinners. But whenever it all comes down to it, all of us would say we are in need of a Savior, and we're we're helpless and hopeless without a Savior. That's right. And they all with all three affirm. Um, uh, the, the basic truths of Christology, the virgin conception of Jesus, his sinless life, his atoning death, his literal bodily resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, his second coming. So all of those are elements of both Roman Catholicism, Orthodoxy, and Protestantism. Faith. I mean, we're going to talk about the distinguishing marks of what's called sola fide, or salvation, or justification by faith alone. But everybody agrees that you have to have faith. Nobody thinks that, you know, it's not important. Nobody thinks that God doesn't call upon us and he says, hey, you can believe in whoever you want, whatever you want. It's no big deal. They're not, we're not pluralists, meaning that we believe that there are many ways to God. Uh, we may uh, talk about later on inclusivism. And some distinguishing things there, but nobody believes there. Are, I mean, many gods and many ways to gods. I know that 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 is elementary, but it needs to be said. Everybody believes that Jesus Christ is the exclusive Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and that people have to come to Him on God's terms. And also, all three believe in heaven and hell. Now, granted, there are, as we know, even within Protestantism, some who don't believe in hell. But and as there is the case with. Catholicism, but in terms of the main creeds that that the church would formally uh, endorse, heaven and hell are included. The the importance and, and the necessity of life in the local church all would agree uh, on Social that. issues, excuse me. Social issues. Yeah, the, the sanctity of life. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, typically all three join together in in opposition to abortion. Um, so what scripture, is, scripture. Oh yeah, the necessity of scripture. Now, yeah. distinction here, not the sufficiency of scripture. Catholics, Orthodox, and Protestants believe in the necessity of scripture. It is and they believe in its inspiration and authority, but neither Catholics nor the Orthodox would affirm what we believe by the sufficiency of scripture. They would supplement or add to scripture the books of the Apocrypha. Um, the Catholic Church would also appeal to tradition. These councils we've been referring to, they would say, are as authoritative as is the Bible. And also what they call the magisterium, which is the teaching office of the Pope in conjunction with the cardinals. When the Pope and the cardinals come forth with a theological affirmation, uh, a decree, it becomes as um, true and authoritative as anything in the Bible, as anything in tradition. Um, Plus, the Eastern Orthodox would affirm that there is actually a revelatory value in icons, that God reveals himself through these images that are involved in worship. Mm-hmm. So what are some other? Anything else we've left out there? Yeah, I mean, I know we've said heaven and hell, but I mean, just the general idea of the, the coming hope, that our ultimate hope is, is in a fully restored and redeemed world, that there's this coming new heaven and new earth, and there's judgment, and really, I mean, just this idea that this is not all there is, that that something went wrong. I mean, the whole kind of general Christian paradigm of salvation and the fall and, and our, our coming hope are all the same. It's not as if, uh, well, the Eastern Orthodox believe, you know, whenever whenever you die and you go to heaven, you you come back reincarnated, or, or that the Catholics believe that you're going to have 90 virgins, you know. We all have a very similar uh, hope. The uh, Muslims only get 70 now. Uh, 70? Yeah, Roman Catholics get 90. Well, I've tried <laughs> to push it up to 90. <laughs> it's an so. upgrade. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, but it's interesting. I would suspect that there are people listening to us right now who are a little bit surprised. Mm. And they're probably saying, my goodness, if we hold all those basic fundamental truths in common, why is there such division? Why is there such animosity? Why is it that people on all three sides are hurling stones at the other saying, you're not saved? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's what we're going to talk about. Right. I think next time that's what we need to start with is we, we've gone through, we've talked about these things, uh, and we need to talk about the differences and start uh, laying out how we're going to work through these differences. And I think some of the some of the similarities will, again, become more clear to us. But you know, I, I, one of the things that uh, really strikes me that, uh, uh, that makes a Roman Catholic today or makes a Protestant today that as I think is important for people to recognize is that to be a Roman Catholic, you really have to be in full submission to a certain system that we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks. It's not as if there's a pick-and-choose type thing. The Roman Catholics, you talked about the magisterial authority and the Pope and the pronouncements that they've made. They've had 21 councils, and of those 21, you don't pick 20 out of 21 to agree with. Or, or you know, the best of uh, the, the top five that you like. It is that there's a full submission to this authority that we're going to be talking about here and all of these beliefs that we're going to be talking about. And so with Protestants, the hard thing, I think, for our listeners to understand is that you and I, we, we do, we discuss things. We talk about Calvinism and Arminianism. We talk about, we talk about uh, old earth, young earth. We talk about our future and the different things that we can believe about that. And while there is diversity within the Roman Catholic Church and allowance to believe various things, there, once they've made a pronouncement on something, you do not have the luxury of saying, I can be a cafeteria Catholic. I can pick and choose what I want. And so all the things that we're going to be talking about over the next weeks are not just interesting things within Roman Catholicism. These are dogmas of the Roman Catholic Church. These are things that you must believe in order to be Catholic, and the moment you no longer believe them or disagree with them or no longer fall under the authority of the the, the stated um, uh, pronouncement on these things, you are no longer Catholic. You are, by definition, if I can put it this way, protesting. You're, you're a Protestant. Mm-hmm. And so um, that, I'm excited to, to go through this, but I do, I do want people to see what we're talking about and what, what it means to be Catholic. It's not a casual thing to be Catholic, even though there are so many casual Catholics out there, just like there are casual Protestants. So hopefully we represent the best stuff, right, guys? Let's, let's represent Catholics as they're supposed to be. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, we want to be very careful not to um, misrepresent because I think that's one of the... This is one of the reasons why there is so much animosity that continues is that um, it, is that Catholics oftentimes will insist that Protestants don't really understand what they believe. And honestly, that's, that's probably true in many, if not the majority of cases. All right, guys. Next week we'll pick back up talking about... Some of the similarities uh, are some of the differences. You've been listening to Theology Unplugged. Visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes store. All episodes are available as free downloads. Theology Unplugged is made possible by Credo House Ministries. Theology Unplugged is a listener-supported ministry. If you have enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For more information on how to become a ministry partner 
And for a complete listing of valuable resources, visit us on the web at credohouse.org. It is our sincere hope that you believe more deeply today than you did yesterday. Thank you for listening.